Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I begin today with a heavy heart as uh, the great artist and even greater spirit, Roberto Venosa, left this life last night. It's really hard for me to find the words to express the grief and shock that comes with the loss of somebody who still had so much to give to the world. And I'll have more to say about Roberto in a future program, but for now, uh, you can go back to podcast number 51 and hear the talk that he gave for the 2006 Palenque Norte Lectures uh, at the Burning Man Festival. And perhaps, uh, just as you lay down to go to sleep tonight, maybe you... uh, can send some of your love and light to Roberto's widow, the brilliant artist Martina Hoffman, who I'm sure can use all of the light and love that we can send her. To be honest, uh, I'm having to kind of force myself to record this podcast right now because Roberto's death has uh, really taken me by surprise. And I guess that I should mention that although I am aware that for the most part he was known as Robert Venosa, well, uh, when we were at Burning Man together in 2006, I, uh, I thought I heard Martina call him Roberto. And so I asked him if he wanted me to introduce him as Robert or Roberto, and he smiled and uh, said, go ahead and call me Roberto. And uh, that's how I've thought of him ever since, Roberto with that great big smile. And uh, so I guess I should get on with this program, uh, which I suspect is going to put a great big smile on a lot of Saloners' faces, including yours, I even suspect. And uh, some people who have put a big smile on my face uh, are some fellow Saloners who either made a donation directly to the Salon or who bought a copy of my Pay What You Can audiobook, my novel The Genesis Generation. And these kind souls are Graham W., Daniel S., David N. and his friends involved in the Evolve Fest, which uh, I'm told is a moister, greener, cheaper Burning Man of the East. And uh, also thank you to Lightning Hawk, Kyle K., Chaz A., and uh, also a big thank you goes out to fellow Saloner who I'm looking forward to meeting at the workshop on Orcus, and uh, that's our fellow Saloner, Jeremy S., And, of course, I'll uh, give you some more information about that workshop that Bruce Damer and I are doing on uh, Orcas Island on the 1st of October this year. Uh, But first, I want to hear today's program, which is a continuation of the Dennis McKenna interview that we uh, heard uh, the first half of in my previous podcast. As you know, uh, if you did hear that program, this interview took place in 1994 and was orchestrated by Peter Gorman, who very kindly furnished copies of this recording for us to use here in the salon. And uh, thanks to the digitizing efforts of fellow saloner Hector Glass also, I should say. And uh, right after we hear the conclusion of this interview, I'll give you some more information about Peter and the important work that he's doing these days, uh, particularly in the area of ayahuasca, about which he uh, has a new book just out. But first, let's return to the second half of this uh, very interesting interview with Dennis McKenna, whose professional life has been not only uh, one of academic achievement, but also of high adventure. And I'll warn you ahead of time that there isn't anything wrong with your MP3 player, but uh, there are two or three instances where one tape ended and the other began and where a few words were missed, but uh, it shouldn't distract you very much. Now, when we left off last week, Dennis had just reached the point in his narrative at which he said that not being accepted by the Harvard Graduate School was the best thing that ever happened to him. And that's where we're going to pick up right now. I really didn't have the qualifications to be accepted into Harvard. So the dream of going to Harvard kind of faded at that point. But as later events turned out, uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because uh, while I was going to school at CSU, I talked to Dr. Sturmitz and a couple of my advisors about that I wanted to go into ethnobotany. And one of my advisors, CSU said, well, if you want to study ethnobotany, you have to, you should go to school, you should go to graduate school in a 
in a tropical environment or semi-tropical environment. So I put in an application to the University of Hawaii, and uh, I uh, was accepted there. And uh, it wasn't clear what I was going to to study, but when I when I got to the University of Hawaii a year later, this was 1976. Um, I went up to the department, and I was still interested, of course, in cosmology and astronomy and all these big questions. Still interested in science fiction. And it turned out there was a person on the faculty of the botany department who listed one of his interests as uh, exobiology, uh, which is the study of extraterrestrial life. <laughs> and I thought, gee, that's who's this guy? You know. So I went up to the botany department and I was wandering around the halls and I said, you know, I wandered up to this funny-looking guy in the hall, big, thick glasses, huge, obese person. Uh, not a particularly physically attractive person, but I went up and I said, I'm looking uh, for Dr. Siegel. And he said, well, I'm Dr. Siegel. Uh, so we went, I said, I'm Dennis McKenna. I'm a new, new graduate student here. And we went into his office and talked for a few minutes, and it was clear that we were kindred spirits. This man um, had such broad interests and knew so much that it just it just completely blew me away. He wasn't interested in psychedelics particularly, but I told him about them. He understood what it was all about. We talked about his interests in exobiology and my interests in uh, ethnobotany and so on. And, and at the end of the interview, he said, "Well, you know, when you applied here, they they asked me if I wanted to be your supervisor, and I told them I didn't because I I really didn't have much interest." Uh, the body and I didn't know what you were all about, but he said after our conversation, uh, I've changed my mind, and so he said I'd be very happy to be your supervisor. So he was my supervisor for my master's degree, uh, and uh, he turned out to be just a really important intellectual influence on me. He had a very interdisciplinary view of things. He was interested. He had had grants from NASA for many years to study what he called extreme environments. And uh, he was studying, you know, basically, uh, you know, under what parameters could life exist. So he would simulate conditions uh, thought to exist at the surface of Mars or thought to exist on Jupiter. And then he would put ordinary Earth organisms like onion seedlings and, and uh, cacti and tarantulas into these extreme environments and see whether they could survive and how they did survive and what kind of biochemical changes took place in their physiology. As it turned out, many of these things adapted extremely well to Earth environment, to extreme environments, and, you know, could get along quite fine in environments where the UV flux, for example, was equivalent to that of the Martian surface, or uh, he grew cacti underwater, for, and they did just fine for many years. He was just an extremely creative person, and, and he could always see the relationships between different disciplines and different fields. And he was very encouraging in in when I expressed a desire to study, you know, the, the ergot alkaloids in, in Hawaiian woodrose seeds, for example, and that sort of thing. He said, fine, go to it, you know. Here's the lab. Teach yourself phytochemistry. And so he really was a major influence, I have to say, in my intellectual uh, development. He died a few years ago, and, and quite frankly, it, it hit me like it was as though my own father had died. In a lot of ways, he, I, he was my intellectual father and, and scientific father. And uh, so I spent a wonderful two years under his tutelage just learning everything he had to offer and, and just soaking it up, living in Hawaii, you know, nice place to live. I knew how to grow mushroom, grow mushrooms, and I was growing mushrooms, so I was better off than most graduate students. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, uh, you know, it was it was actually a great time of my life, on uh, at least on the intellectual levels. I was having some personal problems with uh, having to do with various women that were not responsive to my to my advances and so on. But basically, I was very happy and uh, 
at that time, another uh, friend of Dr. Siegel's came out to visit, uh, Neil Towers from the University of British Columbia. And uh, Dr. Siegel and Neil had known each other for many years, and Dr. Siegel, being the kind of person that he did, whenever someone uh, would, would come out that would, that would be interesting, he'd invite all the graduate students from his lab up to his house, and we'd have dinner, and he was that kind of person. He, he really liked to socialize with his graduate students, and we loved to socialize with him. And so when Neil was in town, he invited us all up for a big dinner, and Neil and I got to talking, and he said, you know, I've really been interested in this uh, thing, this psilocybin, uh, uh, this psilocybin something. Oh, you mean psilocybin. Right, that's it. <laughs> and so Neil and I discovered this mutual interest. He was interested in psilocybin as a plant biochemist. He was interested in its biosynthesis and, and how its biosynthesis genetically regulated and, and what the biochemical pathway of its synthesis was and so on. So he had a, a, grad, uh, a master's degree student working on this, a Chinese woman who really, it was just a project that he gave her. She knew nothing about its psychoactive properties. She took no interest in this. And I said, well, you know, I'm quite interested in, in all this. And so why don't you uh, think about letting me come to work for my PhD in your lab, and Neil said, sure, why not? So uh, I was about a year and a half away from getting my master's at that time, but Neil and I kept in touch, and uh, when I got my master's, he was as good as his word, and when the time came, he found support for me. I got a fellowship to the University of British Columbia, and I was all set. I left. Hawaii, and I went to Vancouver, and I started in the program there. And originally, my my uh, my dissertation project was defined as to be to investigate the genetics and the genetic regulation of psilocybin biosynthesis and the entomology of psilocybin biosynthesis in using um, psilocybin cubensis as a test organism. And the fact that I had, I already knew how to grow mushrooms and I was quite good at it certainly was part of my qualifications. So actually, for the first year of my studies, um, I was I was working on that, developing uh, methods for chemical analysis of psilocybin and, and working on some of the entomology. And I actually had a growth chamber down in the basement of the botany building that was full of uh, fruiting. Uh, Stropharia cubensis. <laughs> so, it was quite interesting. <laughs> Other people were growing... I'm jealous. Huh? I'm jealous. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people were, actually. Because up in British Columbia, you know, mushrooms were quite popular. <laughs> in fact, the president of the of the, uh, of the Graduate Students Association in the, in the Botany Department, who was quite a character, and uh, we've become... We're still our fast friends, but he was quite a character. He told me when I first introduced myself in the graduate student meeting and said what I was working on, he said, well, I guess I guess we know what you'll be bringing to the, to the fall picnic. <laughs> and as it turns out, I didn't, but it was, it was quite fun. So I worked on that for about the first year that I was, uh, that I was uh, a graduate student in Neil. Towers lab, but then he called me in one day and he said, uh, you want to go to South America? I've, I've got some extra money and I'd like to send a couple of you, of you graduate students down to collect some plants and do some ethnobotanical work. So of course I said, you, you know, yep, my bags are packed, when do we leave? And uh, so uh, we, I changed directions at that point. I rewrote my my the other graduate student and myself went to South America in uh, uh, January of 81, and we were there about six months collecting plants and making contact, collecting ukuhe and ayahuasca both. And see, Don did his uh, graduate work on another group of plants. He wasn't particularly interested in, in psychedelics. He was interested more in ethnomedicine. But we got along quite well, so that's 
when I uh, had my first introduction to real ethnobotanical field work. Uh, was really not in 71, but 81 when I went back to revisit uh, all these issues that have really been raised in 71, but this time I had the, the tools, the scientific tools, to do something about it. Um, so that, that's about it. I, I'm drifting off again. I, I'm not sure what the question was. But You're doing fine. Okay. Let's move into uh, um, botanical dimensions. Mm -hmm. Am I right? And gonna, if I guess that uh, botanical dimensions in uh, in Hawaii grows out of uh, your interest, Terence's interest, Kate's interest in, uh, or Kat's interest in, uh, you know, uh, the uh, psychedelics, um, and and from your experience in Hawaii that you had some connections, or or how how did you end up there? And tell us something about with it. with botanical dimensions. Yeah. Well, it all really goes back to. Um, my undergraduate work in Hawaii when I was there for three years during one of those periods why uh, Terrence and, and Kat um, I started my undergraduate work in Hawaii in 1976 and uh, and Terrence and Kat actually got married that year so uh, the next year they came out uh, to Hawaii just for a vacation but through some contacts in Hawaii some real estate in the real estate business, I knew about this land over on the Big Island. So they were going over there, so I said, you know, you want to look at this, maybe it's a good deal. So they, they did, they went over and they contacted the guy and, and they decided to buy this plot of land. It was really part of a, what in Hawaii they call a hui, a, a group of people who go together. So it wasn't a, an individual thing, it's like you're part of a, a buyer's club. Mm -hmm. And the, the Hui owned this 50-acre parcel uh, collectively. So they, they bought this land, and they decided to, uh, you know, build a, a house on it. So they started that. So that kept them coming back and forth to Hawaii fairly regularly while I was there. Well, at the same time, I was getting specimens. Um, I was in contact with Tim Plowman at the time, who was at the Field Museum. And I actually obtained uh, a specimen of Banisteriopsis from him. And we uh, were growing it in aquarium tanks and so on on the mainland. And it didn't, uh, it didn't uh, do so well under those circumstances. So I got, uh, I, I brought a cutting out to Hawaii and, uh, and got it established in this land that they, that they bought. So that was really the first plant that was introduced into the botanical dimensions land long before it was botanical dimensions. Um, and in fact, that original specimen is, too, is still there. It's it's uh, it's got a main trunk now as big as your waist, and it's actually on that particular plot of land. I guess you could say it's the mother of all ayahuasca's. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, over the next ten years, we continue to, you know, we would go to South America and continue to drag things out of the jungle and bring them to this land. When I went to um, South America in, in 1981 to do my, my graduate field work, I, I brought back live specimens, and some of those ended up in Hawaii. Terrence and Kat also went a couple of times and brought things back. And this process just continued over the next 10 years. Well, finally in 1985, they decided, I, I really didn't have that much to do with it, but they decided that uh, it, it made sense if we were going to do this and start introducing all these species to, to try to establish a non-profit entity to foster the, you know, to make something out of this land rather than have it just be an informal thing. So they incorporated botanical dimension. Uh, and at the time, I, I was... Uh, listed as an advisor, but I was not on the board of directors, the reason being that I was in the process of, of trying to establish, I was in the more entrepreneurial mode, and I was trying to establish a business, uh, a natural products uh, business that would be related to drug development, uh, sort of along the lines of shaman pharmaceuticals, but, you know, I was, I was five years ahead of, ahead of shaman with trying to do this, which is probably why 
I never was able to obtain sufficient funding to get it off the ground. But I, I didn't, uh, because I was involved in Xenobiotics, that was the name of the company I was setting up, I, I decided it might look like a conflict of interest if I was on the board of Botanical Dimensions. So I remained an advisor. Uh, and they set it up and, and started generating publicity and continued to introduce collections in there. And then later, uh, when the Xenobiotics was more or less dead, I, I actually joined the board and became their research advisor. Uh, You're going to get ahead of yourself now. Or are you going to get ahead of me? Yeah. Let me just stop and say, okay, so 81 was your first experience with mm -hmm. uh, ayahuasca. And with whom did you do it initially? Was well, it a Cordero or was it a, was it a shaman from a tribe? Or No, uh, 81 wasn't actually my first experience. My, my first experience was 71. But uh, actually, I think the ayahuasca that we took was probably, I mean, it certainly served to uh, synergize the mushrooms, but... <laughs> I don't think it by itself it would have been active. My first act, my first experience with an active ayahuasca was actually in, in 1976 or no 77, I believe, in Hawaii, mm -hmm. um, when I took some ayahuasca that Terrence brought back from Peru. Mm -hmm. um, they had gone to Peru that summer and they had made contact with an ayahuasca girl and they had brought some back. So I actually took it in Hawaii. And it was active. It was definitely active. I mean, it certainly made me throw up, and I had a transient kind of psychedelic experience. My second uh, encounter with ayahuasca was, was actually in Peru in 81, when I went to see the same ayahuasca girl that Terrence and Cat had contacted four years previously. That was kind of my in at the time. That's how I was able to reach, uh, you know, to contact a real ayahuasca girl. Don Fidel was his name in, who lived outside Kukalpa. So I, uh, my second encounter was really uh, in 81 with his ayahuasca. And I have been back many, many times to see him uh, as well as subsequently I've met other ayahuasca girls through, uh, largely through my friend, uh, Luis Eduardo Luna, who probably know about, um, and he has introduced me to ayahuasca girls, other ayahuasca girls, both in Peru, and, or both in, uh, in Iquitos and Pucallpa, and we've been back there. In, 80, in 1985, I went back uh, to Peru with Eduardo, and uh, we were traveling there for about uh, eight weeks, making collections and uh, making videos and, and basically making the tour from Ayahuasca to Ayahuasca What was, um, what's your feeling about Ayahuasca? What is my feeling about Ayahuasca? Yeah, which I mean, which is going to lead to getting involved in the medical, you know, in the, in the medical I think Ayahuasca is probably one of the most interesting plant hallucinogens on the planet. You know, in, in, in a lot of respects, I think that it is I think that it's very safe. Uh, I think that if I've often had the feeling, the contrast between the encounter with DMT when you smoke it and the encounter psilocybin is another orally active form of DMT. That's really all it is, is an orally active form of DMT. But I think ayahuasca is actually much more controllable than mushrooms. I think it doesn't exact a physiological toll, which which mushrooms may. Although I'm not convinced that that they do, if used if used with you know used reasonably, um, I think it's it's quite an amazing tool for self understanding and for exploration. I think that it's uh, I think that it's good for you, um, actually physically and psychologically good for you. Um, and I think it's interesting that the sociological phenomenon that goes with it is, is almost as interesting as, as the pharmacology. I mean, here, you know, it, it started out originally as a very obscure aboriginal hallucinogen, which almost no one had heard of. I mean, if you were in the Amazon, you knew about it. But outside the context, 
practically unknown. And slowly, and then it diffused into mestizo society, and it's really there it, it has had a role for some time. It plays an important role in ethnomedical traditions of, of the mestizo people, and it's kind of the central plant in this whole uh, in this whole plant complex, this whole pharmacopoeia of medicinal plants. Basically, all go back to ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is kind of the linchpin of the whole thing. Yeah, it seems to be the plant that generates the interest. It's the plant that generates the interest, and it's the way that the that the practitioners find out about the properties of the other plants. So it is the teacher. It's the the plant teacher par excellence because it is the means that gives them the way to contact the other plants and find out how they work. And then, but that's more or less its context in mestizo society. Then, more recently in Brazil, um, you're seeing it begin to diffuse into larger society, into the lower middle class and upper middle class socioeconomic strata through organizations like the the Daime uh, Church and the Unión de Vegetal. These are syncretic religious movements that are basically bringing ayahuasca out of the jungle and into the hands of ordinary people. And and then, of course, through their influence, it's beginning to diffuse into the states. I mean, there's even, I understand, a movement to establish a chapter of the, of the Union de Vegetal in the states and get it recognized as a legitimate religion uh, with the right to use ayahuasca tea, which it, you know, it certainly is by all criteria that I can that I can imagine, it certainly is a legitimate religion, and its practice should be allowed. Um, uh, but what's interesting in a, in a kind of larger context is that, you know, as our planet faces this ecological crisis, and as we confront the fact that the rainforests are disappearing, and that along with that, the, the plants, the species that we haven't you know that we don't appreciate what we're what we're giving up, and the indigenous knowledge is disappearing. And yet, out of you know this this from within this context of, of ecological crisis, you know comes this this plant spirit literally out of the Amazon and brings the message to the world at large. I mean, I'm not well. I, I suppose this relates to a mystical idea. I mean, I, I'm not really a... It's just funny. I, I think it's in some ways it's the planet responding to the spiritual and ecological crisis that threatens the entire biosphere, that threatens not only our own survival, but the survival of, of the biosphere. And I think that ayahuasca is kind of the messenger uh, of of the rest of the biosphere to humans to say, you know, look at what's happening, get your act together, and, you know, get straightened out. I mean, I really, I really do, I really do believe that. I think it's interesting. You could probably make the case that ayahuasca, a few years ago, maybe 10 or 20, maybe 20 years ago, its use was pretty much restricted to the Amazon basin. And now I think you could make a pretty strong case that it is the most widely used plant hallucinogen in the world. What's your take on... I, I get invited occasionally, uh, you know, to take drink ayahuasca here. Mm. And uh, probably it's ego, but I feel, nah, that's something that when I make the effort to go get it, it seems to you know, be what I need to get. Uh, it seems to serve my purpose. I just feel, I don't know, I, I think of it as personally as something that I prefer to do in a more initial context. Mm -hmm. Now, if I had never been to the jungle, I might feel differently. Well, I'm sure I would. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who's been and whose experiences, uh, not your first with Terrence, but certainly subsequent experiences, have frequently been in the jungle with contact right. with ayahuasca. Right. It, do you find there's a difference when, it, do you do it in, the, in town with, with these crews uh, um, that, you know, the, the ayahuasqueros that occasionally come through, or do you prefer to do it in its 
in more more original context. Well, yes, actually, I do. I, I do prefer to do it in a more traditional context. I would much rather do it in in the Amazon in in Peru or Brazil than I would like to do it here. I don't seek out the the people who come to town, you know, to to basically have workshops which are ayahuasca sessions. I mean, I think that's a kind of a new age thing. I'm not sure it's a bad bad thing. I just don't I just don't really feel the need to seek it out because I think I've had a more a more genuine experience or have had more genuine experiences in in Peru. I do uh take it uh I, I have gone to sessions held by the by the Uniao de Mezutal in this country mm-hmm. and I think, you know, I, I have great respect for that group. Um and I think that they are trying to be very responsible in the way that they bring it to the world. Um, I feel very concerned for them. I feel that they're quite naive. And that is, that's my main worry, actually, about this business of, of trying to bring ayahuasca out of its traditional context and introduce it, uh, you know, in the context of this country. I'm, I'm worried that you know, as long as, I mean, in, in Brazil right now, ayahuasca is legal, and the government has has recognized it's a legitimate religion, and they've said it's okay. And it, it is it is not a drug problem. They've looked at it, and because it's used in a traditional context, basically people don't get into trouble with it. And the Brazilian government has taken a, a very a reasonable attitude and basically saying, well, it's not a, you know, it's not out of control. This is not a drug problem. And so we are not going to make it into a drug problem by making it illegal or by trying to restrict its use. These people are quite capable of policing themselves and then they have, you know, much stronger uh, strictures against misuse or inappropriate use than, than any there's really no need to impose a, a, a legal, you know, superstructure on this. But I do worry that um, if ayahuasca becomes widely distributed in the states or widely known, if it becomes popular, if you will, uh, then there are going to be repercussions down to South America. In other words, our government is able to put pressure on other governments, the Brazilian government, for example, to make this illegal, and I think that would be a shame, um, but I think it would be very hard for these governments to resist that kind of pressure. I mean, they can always say, well, you know, we'll, you have, we'll not give you a break on the, on the foreign debt. There's many, many ways that they can bring pressure against the government of Brazil to, in turn, bring pressure against legitimate religious organizations like the UDV. Now, having said that, it's possible that actually the UDV or some similar organization uh, could be a test case in this in this country. Um, um, you know, the, the Religious Freedom Act that's, that's recently been passed is a blow for all people believe in religious freedom, and it basically says that if the, that the government cannot interfere with the religious practice unless they have a compelling interest to do so, and I think it would be very hard to show that that restricting the use of ayahuasca in, a, in the context of legitimate religion is a compelling interest. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I feel that they're very naive. They have to be very careful in the way that they do this. Um, it worries me that certain groups or certain individuals who are basically selling shamanism, selling shamanism for commercial purposes and, and making a lot of money off it, but they have no, no um, you know, they, they apparently feel no responsibility to the larger issues just, you know, let's hold the sessions and make the money, and, and the problem with that is that it's going to become more and more widely known. It's already become widely known, and it'll become, without some kind of uh, responsible approach to it, it'll just become another drug 
that is the focus of, of repression and uh, the potential benefits of it uh, will will be lost. So yes, I am concerned uh, about this commercialization of it and the commercialization of shamanism in general. I mean, I think people are deluded if they think that they can go to an ayahuasca session in Marin County and, and get you know any idea uh, of what it is really like to take it in a in a shamanic context. In, in the same time, I you know that is not to say that they may not benefit from going to an ayahuasca session in Marin County. I mean, I know many people have and many people do, uh, but there's a need for discretion and there's a need to I don't know not not popularize it. The mass media, in a lot of ways, does a disservice to these things. These are very delicate and culture-bound kinds of practices, and when suddenly they're broadcast all over the world and, and hiked through the mass media, through the mass media, these these culture-bound practices are very vulnerable to basically being destroyed, and particularly. Uh, when the use of a sacred substance is involved. I mean, it's no different than it, than it ever was. I mean, when the Jesuits and the, the missionaries came to Mesoamerica, you know, the, the first things to go, the first things to be stamped out were the knowledge of the sacred plants and the practice of using the sacred plants. Of course, they didn't succeed in, in stamping them out. They, they went underground and they continued to survive. And they still do survive, but it, uh, you know, it, it led to a very unfortunate period of, of repression. Yeah. You know, and and a lot of it has to do with, I suppose the, the, uh, what would you call it, the repressive nature of Christianity. I mean, I think that, that Christianity. Well, the marriage of Christianity to Calvinist beliefs. The marriage of Christianity to Calvinist beliefs. Exactly. I couldn't have put it better. I mean, the idea that, you know, if it feels good, it's bad. <laughs> and and a lot of it has to do with the... I mean, I, th I think that, that Christianity linked to Calvinism has a hard time uh, dealing with what you might call facts of biology. Uh, you know, which, which uh, in another phrase, is, is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, in some ways, life is about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Biology is about those things. I mean, sex is obvious, you know, that the, the strategy of, of most biological systems is to get reproduced. You know, whether we think it's important or not, that's what sex is all about, really. And from the standpoint of biology, is to reproduce and pass the genes on to the next generation. As far as drugs are concerned, uh, you know, we are bags of drugs. Uh, we are, you know, sacks of neurotransmitters and hormones, which are basically drugs. I mean, people can say, well, you know, I don't like to take drugs because I don't like artificial experience. I don't like, I like to have real experience. Well, baby, you know, all experience is a drug experience. <laughs> you know, I mean, whether it's mediated by our own drugs or whether it's mediated by substances that we ingest that are found in plants, you know, um, cognition, consciousness, uh, the working of the brain, it's all a chemically mediated um, process. So, uh, you know, life itself is a drug experience. Uh, and finally, rock and roll, you know, if you relate that to rhythm, you know, rhythm is what it's about. Oscillation um, is a fact of biology. That's what metabolism is. It's a regular, a clock-like uh, turning over of, of neurotransmitters, enzymes, and hormone systems. So when you say, you know, life is all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, you can say it flippantly, but I think, I, I actually believe there's a, a, a profound truth behind that observation. At least that's how I interpret it, interpret it from the standpoint of, of a biologist. Yeah. Quickly, let me just get them out of the way. Uh, are you currently working with Terence on anything? Not really. Um, Terence is, we're going, you know, we, we each have our own careers, and, and he more or less 
you know, has chosen to be a spokesman for, for all this and very much in the public eye, and I have chosen not to, I guess. I mean, I, I don't really seek out publicity. I prefer to work in the background. Uh, we're on good terms. Uh, we appear, um, well, actually, we don't make appearances that, that often together. I mean, like we did uh, at the Seeds of Change conference, and I believe we're scheduled to have a, a CompuServe um, online forum in June, but he really is more or less the public the public one. I mean, he's kind of the spokesman and the philosopher and the metaphysician, and I prefer uh, to be to be less publicly visible. And I guess if if I had to put a label on myself in this context, you know, I'm the scientist. I'm I'm the nuts and bolts person. You know, he gets all his good ideas from me. By the way, does he? I would say so. Would he say so? Yes, I think if he's honest with himself, he'd have to acknowledge that. Okay. <laughs> Which cuts out the, where are your points of, where are your points of disagreement with him? Huh? And then, uh, which, which eliminates the question of where are your points of disagreement with some of his primary lectures? Where are my points of disagreement? Well, I mean, if, if uh, you know, if, if the ideas are coming from you, I, I don't imagine there are. Ah, right. the ideas are coming from me, but the interpretations are coming <laughs> from you. Okay. <laughs> well, I, uh, one point of disagreement that we have, I think he's loose with the facts. I think that, uh, you know, he will never let a fact get in the way of making a provocative statement. No, and he's a good storyteller. He's a good storyteller, but I think it's important to remember that they are stories. And that, you know, I mean, he often makes mistakes in his lectures, and he often, even in his books, says things, again, I have to say this, because he didn't check it with me first. <laughs> you know, he didn't check his facts, and so there are a lot of often. Well, in in, true, in uh, Food of the Gods, for example, many things are said which are just not correct. You know, I mean, uh, issues on which there's no dispute. These are not philosophical uh, issues. These are just uh, you know misstatements of fact. So I think. You know, one criticism I have of him is that he's, he's you know, he, I mean, if he doesn't know something, he'll just make something up, you know, so as to appear not to be completely ignorant on a subject. And as a scientist, that rankles, you know. It's okay to say, I don't know. You know, I mean, we don't know almost everything. What we do know is very little. Um, so that's an area where we, you know, disagree. I guess another area where we disagree is another place that uh, that you could that you could uh, say we disagree has to do with uh, the interpretation of uh, all the events that came out of uh, of La Chirera and the Invisible Landscape and True Hallucinations. But you kind of have to be familiar with at least have read True Hallucinations to know what I'm talking about. But I think one place that we differ is that. You know, I don't necessarily buy uh, all of the ideas that were that came out of that experience and which were set forth in the invisible landscape. I mean, now the invisible landscape has been republished. It's been nearly 20 years ago that it was written. Well, it was it was published first in 1975, so it's been nearly 20 years that it was that it was pub since it was published first. And it was written before that. I mean, it was essentially finished in 1972, I guess. So it's been over 20, it's been 23 years since the thing was written. I would like to think that in that time I've learned a thing or two and I'm able to revise my ideas. Uh, and I have done so. Uh, I don't dismiss everything that's in the invisible landscape, but I think a lot of them were fairly naive ideas, kind of silly ideas, really, which were, which were, can be attributed to the fact that 
you know, I was young, we, Terrence was young, neither one of us had very much scientific background, essentially we had no scientific training at the time, and that, so it didn't get in the way of this kind of freewheeling metaphysical speculation. Mm-hmm. Since that time, I've learned a great deal, I, or uh, maybe not a great deal, but at least something, so that I don't completely accept the premises of some of our major ideas that were set forth in the invisible landscape. And in fact, I say pretty much this in the foreword uh, to the new edition of the invisible landscape. So I ask people to at least read that. Uh, it's kind of a disclaimer on my part. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure Terence feels that way. I think he may feel that that the ideas are just as valid now. I mean, I think he even has told me that, you know, he hasn't found a reason to change a thing uh, in the way that he feels about about some of these metaphysical ideas. And I, in a way, I think that's a shame because, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, I haven't learned anything in 25 years. I have not found any new information which will make me alter my opinions one iota. Uh, I don't think that that's a very, you know, that's not healthy intellectually. Um, also, I'm not sure how much it's true. Um, he may just say that to to irritate me, but to some degree I think it's true. I mean, I think he really does have a basic underlying belief that somehow at the base of it all, all of this is true. And I think, you know, it's hard for me to go along with that. I mean, I think that you know, he can hold to that belief because these ideas have been unexamined for a long time. They've become incorporated into a kind of public litany, and for him to, uh, you know, abandon that now, it's like you abandon the cause. You kind of, you know, you, you take up the flag for a radical set of ideas, and if you if you subsequently say, well, no, you know, I was wrong, I mean, this is completely correct, uh, then, you know, it looks bad. So I think he's chosen to not really examine the ideas carefully, uh, because that would force him to have to go back and perhaps repudiate some of them. Did that answer the question? Yes, and I find, I mean, my own experience limited, you know, with ayahuasca over the years is uh, some of the things it generates in me. I look now at find myself blushing at a couple of early pieces saying yeah I could have phrased that softer a little less sure of myself right but the other thing that's another aspect of Terence's uh, you know public gig if you will which I find somewhat disturbing Um, I I mean in some ways I think it's great because he is a great storyteller there's no doubt about it Um, you know he's fascinating to listen to um, and he has you know, through the years, kept this alive. I mean, if, if you want to give him credit, I give him credit for keeping the issue of psychedelics alive and before the public, perhaps more than any other person. Uh, I mean, he's, because he just keeps talking about it, and he was talking about it all through the late 70s and early and, and 80s when the war on drugs was at its height. So that takes uh, a certain amount of courage to keep bringing that up and throwing it in people's face. Um, having said that, though, I, I think that maybe um, because he attaches it to a lot of ideas that are fairly radical, fairly radical and hard to uh, hard to support. In some ways, he's done the scientific investigation, the, the the scientific community that really wants to look at psychedelics in a more Serious, or I don't know if serious is the word, a more a more objective kind of context, a kind of a disservice, you know, because he he links them to I, ideas, you know, which are pretty off the wall, you know, this notion that they are, uh, you know, somehow linked to extraterrestrials and this kind of thing. I mean, it may well be true. We don't know, but I don't think I think the important thing, the the thing to say, if you're honest, is we don't know rather than asserting that this is so. I mean, I think you could say, I think you could certainly make the, the case, for example, that, uh, that you know, Timothy Leary, who 
was a man. If, I mean, I, I feel I have great admiration for Tim in some ways. I, I think, but I think that he was a man kind of caught on a historical wave. I mean, if it hadn't been him, maybe it would have been someone else. But, but on one hand, you can say, well, Timothy Leary, you know, did more than any other single person to to destroy psychedelic research in this country. I mean, it's largely because of his inflammatory statements and his radical stance that, you know, America at large, middle America, became hysterical, they became frightened, and they decided basically just to shut down the whole thing, to repress it as much as they could, largely because of the statements that this very flamboyant person was out there, and people were concerned that, you know, concerned for their children and this kind of thing, rightly or wrongly, obviously, but, you know, so they decided, you know, we're not going to, we're just going to shove this whole thing under the rug, and they managed to do so, including scientific research, which was going on, you know, steadily at that time. They just, it basically, it all stopped Yeah. For 20 years, and, I think and I'm so. concerned that parents uh, may be doing a similar a disservice uh, at this time. You know, I mean, I mean, with, with people making radical statements, there's a chance that, again, you know, we could revisit this. Hopefully, we're a little wiser this time around. But, but it's a difficult position, though, to be the front man, whether it's a rock and roll band or, you know, the spokesman for any group or movement. Um, listen to really ardent followers who really want you to take the next step. Right. And then. You know, unfortunately, there's going to be that journalist there who says that's the comment that'll make the headline. Mm-hmm. You know, which which may or may not be your headline comment. Right, right. But yeah, uh, but the thing is, I mean, Terrence, I don't think Terrence's message, his rap, is so idiosyncratic that I don't think he's the spokesman for any psychedelic movement. I think most of the, I mean, many people in the psychedelic movement, including myself, would disagree strongly with a great deal of what he says. So he's kind of taken this very idiosyncratic approach, and so people shouldn't, you know, particularly the mass media, should not get the idea that this guy speaks for the whole movement. He doesn't. Right. Unfortunately, the mass media is not going to take the time to seek out the next guy. They're going to go to, hey, you know, 20 people are speaking on it over at the Open Center, but only one gets the Open Center at Cooper Union. So let's go. And I did see you there a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Terrence got it and, you know, fills the place, and you say, you know what I mean? And that's that's the one that generates the interest. I know. Um, I know, exactly. So I do understand so that the good and bad of it all. Huh? I do understand the good and bad of it all, of right. Timothy Leary and then, the other side. In that position, you know, a guy who can pack the houses every time, I feel has a larger responsibility to the psychedelic community to refrain from making these completely off-the-wall comments, you know, and to actually tell it like it is, not how he imagines it to be. And, and uh, you know, of course, the other side of it is people go to hear the off-the-wall comments. That's what they're there to hear. I think people should view it as theater and not as, you know, someone pronouncing truth necessarily. I mean, I, I'm sure that Terrence views it as theater. You know, I can't believe that he takes what he says seriously. I mean, I can tell you that he doesn't. Much of what he says, he says it because it's going to get a rise out of somebody. You know, he's always been that way. I mean, you know, never let the fact, never let the fact get in the way of a provocative statement, you know. I mean, the provocative statement is the important thing. If the facts happen to disagree with it, well, then, you know, we'll just ignore those. It's kind of like Murphy's Law, you know, I think, or not Murphy's Law, but one of those similar uh, laws of science, you know, that people say jokingly, if, if the facts fail to agree with the theory, they must be disposed of. And that's sort of Terrence's approach to these <laughs> which I think is unfortunate, actually, because the the story itself is far out enough. You know, you don't really have to distort the facts or invoke, uh, you know, elf machines from Dimension X to, to get 
to make it far out. I think there don't. I don't know if it's you know if it's a concern. There are people like me in the audience um, who who don't always take him at his word. Mm-hmm. You know, who actually think, okay, I I mean I'm he's Irish. I'm Irish. He sounds like uh, you know my big brother talking, and my big brother never hit two sewer home runs if I didn't see them. He always hit four sewer home runs. Right. I just never got to see those. Right. I, I, you know what I mean? And I, so in a sense, there's a certain sum of that. Mm. Um, and uh, so not, not everybody is, is, you know, taking him at his utmost. Um, right. Let me but get back a to... A lot of it, I mean, now he's real big in the, in the Generation X, in the, in the 20 to 30 age group. You know, which I think that's fine. I mean, I think it's, it's good that they're getting, uh, you know, and that there is a resurgence of, of interest in psychedelics. I mean, I think that that's all to the good. But um, you know, at the same time, you have to say, well, you know, these people are young, they're naive, they haven't been around the block very much, so they're more gullible, they're more open to this stuff. And... Uh, I, I don't know that that's good necessarily. Well, everybody's got to learn. I think every generation has to learn for itself certain certain universal truths. I guess that you can't just uh, you cannot you know, impose this on people. There are certain things that must be learned through experience. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Ah, yes, as uh, Dennis just said, there are certain things that must be learned through experience. Of course, uh, what was left unsaid is the fact that it is quite often a bad experience through which learning takes place. (laughs) Actually, come to think of it, uh, (laughs) right at this moment, I can't think of a single important thing that I've ever learned through a really good experience. Other uh, other than the fact that I'd like to do it again, of course. Uh, <laughs> I've had some of those good experiences. Now, uh, I know that this is off topic, but I've just got to get this off my chest. You know, if you think back to uh, where this interview began today, it started with Dennis talking about a grad school rejection by Harvard turning out to be one of the best things that had ever happened to him. And if you're like me, you're probably getting tired of hearing stories that begin that way. In my case, uh, when I was younger, I figured that they were just rationalizations to make people feel better about a bad situation. But now that I've uh, just now today actually finished my 69th lap around the sun, well, uh, what gets to me about those statements is that, uh, well, I've had five or six of those instances in my own life that I thought were uh, real tragedies beyond measure at the time, but eventually they morphed into some of the best things that ever happened to me. So uh, now, uh, ironically, those stories kind of scare me into thinking that if I ever wanted life to be better than it now is, then uh, I first got to endure another one of those great tragedies. (laughs) And uh, so I've solved the dilemma in my own life by realizing that right here and now is fantastic. And uh, if it got any better, I'd probably pop. And uh, so I don't let that phrase upset me anymore. Uh, But I can't blame you for maybe being a little cynical about that way of seeing things if you haven't had it happen to you at least once so far. uh, It definitely is counterintuitive. Now, getting back to the interview that we just heard, I hope that if you are one of the young students who has contacted me in the past about how you could go about uh, becoming more involved in psychedelic research as a profession, that you give some thought to where the major turning points were in Dennis's professional life, uh, the ones that led him to a position of prominence in the academic realm, as well as uh, in the realm of explorations of many kinds. And if you think about it for a while, uh, you may come to the same conclusion as I have that it was Dennis's ability to pay attention to the little details, the chance statements and the synchronistic events that showed up like little kernels of corn pointing the way down the trail that, uh, as it turns out, he was not just following, he was uh, actually blazing it as he went along. And that's the way life is, uh, at least if you give it a chance and uh, trust your gut feelings, you know, your instincts. 
stress them over the rational and uh, often fearful processes of your brain, and uh, you might be surprised at how uh, wonderful your life can turn out. Now, there is one thing in this interview that I have to take a little issue with, and I hope that sometime in the next year or so that Dennis and I have a chance to uh, talk about this in person. And that is his statement that uh, as much as he admired Timothy Leary, that he nonetheless felt that it was Leary who was mainly responsible for causing an end to the psychedelic research, that uh, at least until very recently. And while I don't want to take your time with this uh, right now, uh, since I've talked about this in past podcasts, I would suggest that maybe you do a little research on your own. Uh, read some of the news articles from back in those days and then compare what Leary was doing when he was tripping with a dozen or so spiritually inclined followers with what Ken Kesey was doing when he and his friends were dosing thousands of people at a time, uh, many of them unsuspecting. Granted, uh, Leary eventually came under the influence of Kesey and made a public spectacle of himself for a while, but in my opinion, I put the majority of blame for ruining a good thing uh, squarely on the shoulders of Ken Kesey. But uh, hey, that's uh, just my opinion, and ultimately it's only your opinion that is going to be of any matter to you. So if you're interested in this topic, uh, read a few books and uh, a few websites about those interesting times, and then come to your own conclusions. And the fact of the matter is that your opinion is uh, every bit as valid as mine, and uh, probably more so now that I think about it. Now, uh, back to today's program, uh, and it was what I consider to be the very best and fairest critique of the work of Terrence McKenna that I've yet heard. Well, the main thing I want to say is that I hope that you'll now be inspired to question everyone you hear speak in these podcasts, uh, and especially me, uh, because what psychedelic thinking is all about is about you taking charge of your own mind and thinking for yourself and questioning authority. Any and all authorities, you know, role models, mentors, teachers, friends, and family members, just to uh, mention a few. Inform yourself and then form your own opinions about this world, and then act accordingly. Okay, uh, that's enough of the soapbox for today, uh, particularly because I still have a bunch of other things I want to tell you. First of all, uh, I want to be sure to once again thank Hector Glass, who digitized the tape that this recording was made on, uh, made by Peter Gorman who also conducted the interview, as you already know. And uh, Peter has been kind enough to furnish some other talks that we'll be hearing in future podcasts. Uh, also, he's somebody to know if you're interested in exploring the uh, plant mixture known as ayahuasca. Uh, and a good place to begin would be by reading his new book, Ayahuasca in My Blood, 25 Years of Medicine Dreaming. And uh, I'll put a link to that along with the uh, program notes for this podcast and a link to uh, Peter's main website. Now, I was going to uh, end my remarks today by saying a few words about what's going on in uh, the UK and the rest of the world right now and about an idea that goes by the name of Anonymous. But uh, to tell the truth, I've had enough heavy stuff for one day, and, and so I'm going to end on a lighter note by reading two comments that were recently posted on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon website. And uh, by the way, that's really about the only sure way for me to see any messages from you. Uh, if you're like me, you're having problems keeping up with email, Facebook mail, Twitter mail, and uh, all those other sources of messages. But the one thing that I never miss are the comments that you post on the uh, Salon Notes blog. You see, a huge amount of spam is posted there each day, and so the comments are not automatically posted to the website once you click the post button. What happens is that each day I have to uh, go out and delete the posts in the spam folder and then individually approve the valid comments. So a couple of days ago, I checked the comments folder and found a comment that read, Lorenzo, I love the goofiness. I love the fact that you are actually doing this for grandchildren. Anyway, I think you are on to something when you mention those coincidences. After all, they are a key to what's being talked about. In one way, being connections between more dots in the universe. Please mention as many of those that you experience as you can. And I started to think about, uh, oh, what could I say? But at the very next instant almost, I went to the next comment to approve. And uh, it was for a completely different podcast. And it turns out it came in about six hours after the one I just uh, read to you. Now this one read, Hector, 
So there I was, about to click on my bookmark to the psychedelic salon to check if there was a new episode, when, for some reason, I thought back to the time I was in Peru where I met someone who also was a regular listener of this wonderful podcast. That person's face was in my mind when I clicked the link, and then, lo and behold, there he was smiling with his arm around Lorenzo. A hell of a synchronicity for me. Hope you're doing well, Hector. Ian from Scotland. Now, uh, while this isn't a synchronicity, I want to let Lefty know that I really enjoyed his podcast number 112 from Lefty's Lounge, which, uh, by the way, you can find on the most excellent cannabis podcast network at dopefiend.co.uk. So, so Lefty, there I was a couple of nights ago cooking dinner and listening to your podcast when I stopped and took a little sip of wine just uh, just as you got to the punchline in that Mr. Roach clip segment. And, uh, well, as a kid, I can remember having milk come out of my nose when an unexpected laugh came on, but this is the first time that it ever happened with wine. And in case you're wondering, I definitely do not recommend snorting wine. But I most certainly do recommend listening to Lefty's Lounge whenever you're in the mood for good music and good comedy. And, uh, hey, thanks for the laugh, Lefty. I really needed it. Well, I guess that's about... Oh, wait, one thing I almost forgot to mention, the workshop that Bruce Damer and I are going to be leading at the Outlook Inn on Orcas Island, Washington, on October 1st. It's actually going to take place on September 30th, that evening, October 1st all day, and Sunday morning, October 2nd. But it's easier just to think of it as October 1st. And uh, you can find out more about it on a website that should be going live any minute now. And you can find that at www.somaticrevolution.com. That's S-O-M-A-T-I-C-R-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N. Somaticrevolution.com. And uh, tickets for the three-day event are only $45. And neither Bruce nor I are getting a speaking fee from this. Uh, Just expenses. And once all of the expenses uh, are covered, anything that's left over is going to be donated to the Shulgins to uh, help with Sasha's care. Now, I should mention that if you're planning on attending, then uh, you should probably make your reservation early, as we're planning on keeping this a rather small gathering so that we can uh, all get to know one another a little better. And uh, so there should be plenty of time for you to uh, add your voice and thoughts to what we are calling a conversation on consciousness, culture, and the future. And if this podcast wasn't already so long, I'd go into more details about it. But I'm going to have to save that for the next uh, program as we're already way over what I consider a reasonable length for me to talk in one of these podcasts. And uh, so I'll close today by reminding you once again that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any uh, questions about that, just click the uh, Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you are uh, interested in some of the stories that may or may not have led you and me to where we are sharing this moment together right now, you can uh, read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available in Kindle and other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook read by me. And you can find out more about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.